Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Well, this summer, uh, for the first time, we've had a teaching intern with us, and you heard him preach uh, last week. Ben Clausen has joined us, and Ben is a recent graduate from Tyndale University College in Toronto uh, and is heading for his master's degree in the fall at Acadia, which is out in Nova Scotia, and he came to us and he just said, just looking for some experience and some practice and some mentoring and teaching. Is there anything that you guys could do? So uh, we were very impressed by that initiative, and I knew Ben. I've known Ben since I came here. He was the uh, interim youth pastor when I first arrived and have stayed connected while he was away at school. And uh, as you have seen, if you heard the message or have been a part of his Bible study, he's just an exceptionally bright uh, young man and just is sincerely devoted to digging into the truth of God's word and sharing it with others. And so uh, when we set this up for the summer, we agreed that he would do this Bible study before service in the summer weeks. And, uh, and it's not light and fluffy stuff, by the way. This morning we were wrestling through God's goodness and justice and judgment and how does it all work together. So uh, Ben's been leading us through some really good stuff in the Bible study. And we originally had set it up to do, uh, he was going to preach last week, and then he was going to preach on August 11th. And then when Mesh made his announcement, uh, we realized that that date wasn't going to work. And there wasn't really another date that worked really well, unless it was today. And I said, oh, Ben, you don't really want to preach back to back with your Bible study. Like, it's so much work. And Ben said, actually, I would like to do that. As a matter of fact, I'd like to try the challenge of that, which I was very impressed by. So would you please, for back to back engagements at Meadowbrook Church, give a warm welcome to Ben Clausen as he comes to bring the word. Thanks for that, Chris. Not, not embarrassed by that at all. Uh, good morning. Welcome back. It's good to see that many of you have returned, knowing that I was going to be preaching again. I'm encouraged by that. Uh, today we're going to be looking at, uh, how do we describe it? It's probably one of the more easy books to understand, right? The book of Revelation. It's usually pretty straightforward, so might not need not might not need much from me, but we'll see what we can do. This is a book that it's been a personal interest for me probably ever since I started reading the Bible. So when I was a young lad, we'll say 10 to 12 years old, I loved reading Revelation for the symbolism and what's going on because it just blew my little mind. I'm like, what is going on here? This is the coolest thing. Between that and the end of Job, when he starts describing the behemoth and the Leviathan, those were probably my two favorite parts to read. And honestly, right now, I have no idea what's going on in either of them. But as a kid, it was great. I'm like, oh, this is, this is some cool stuff. So that kind of joy in Revelation turned into kind of a hesitance to read it because it is a very weighty book. It is a very complex and difficult to understand book. So that kind of led me away from it. A couple years ago, I took a class in it. And actually, one of the things, one of the phrases that, the, that my professor said that stood out to me were that there, there is an, a great abundance of literature and books written on the book of Revelation. But about 90% of them are only useful for kindling. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man. But that's one of those things, like, if you ever find anybody who says that they understand it completely, call them a liar, because that's what they are. It's, it's a very complicated book. There's a lot of history behind it. There are a lot of commentators that have written on everything else but Revelation. So 
I'm more saying this to kind of keep myself humble as we go through it because there's there's a lot of complicated stuff there's a lot of intense imagery but kind of what we're going to focus on today is a few kind of foundational or a few kind of beginner things that will hopefully encourage all of us to read Revelation and to learn from it more. So we're going to be looking at two passages. Originally it was going to be three, but it's a lot to cover. So we're going to look at two, one of them being Revelation 1, the other one being Revelation 5. So we'll start with one. Before we get into that, just a few little things about Revelation to kind of prepare us as we dig into it. So part of the issue with Revelation is trying to define exactly what Revelation is. The title, so the word itself is the Greek word apokalupsis, which the verbal form literally, mean, literally means to reveal something. So Revelation to reveal, makes sense, easy enough. And that it falls into a genre of literature that was only really prevalent for a few hundred years before and after Christ, and that is apocalyptic literature. And for the most part, apocalyptic literature dealt with the question, who is Lord over the world? This is the, this is the question that this book is trying to answer. And you can also look at the book of Daniel. It has some examples of apocalyptic imagery. So documents like this were written in order to encourage God's people when things seemed to be most difficult. So it was most prevalent during the time uh, a few centuries before Christ, which is where Roman rule was pretty heavy in Judea. So the people needed something. This particular book, Revelation, was written during a time when there was persecution going on in the church. So in order to encourage them, this was revealed to John. So they can say, oh, we know who the Lord of the world is, and it isn't Caesar or anyone like that, but it's God. So it's kind of written with the intention that despite the way things look, God is still in control. God is on the throne. So we'll keep that idea in mind as we go into it. He also has a particular audience in mind, like it's written to the seven churches that are described in chapters two to three, but it the message that it's being, that's being presented is applicable to all the church as it deals with encouraging those who stand firm against idolatry and compromising with the world, as well as admonishing and uh, rebuking those congregations who have already compromised, saying, okay, you've messed up here, now come back because God is calling you back. So it's exhorting God's people to remain faithful to the call that they have been given and to follow the Lamb's example, which when we get to chapter 5, we'll talk about that, of conquest through sacrifice. It also contains some very rich Christology. It's <laughs> it has some of the richest things to say about Christ that you can find in the Bible. Johannine literate, like John's stuff is typically pretty good for that, but going into Revelation, we're going to see what it says. So beginning in Revelation 1, verses 12 to 16. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So the first thing that we see about this one like a son of man is that he's standing among the lampstands, which the end of this section reveals those lampstands represent each of the seven churches that are going to be addressed directly later on. And if you look at his attire, so his robe and his sash, those are Old Testament images of king and priest. But because of his role among the lampstands, it's, you could probably make the leap that he's describing the Son of Man as a priest who's tending the lampstands and that he is tending the church. He is constantly among his church, tending and making and encouraging it. Uh, you can also look, if you look at Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, if you have a chance, you'll notice a lot of similarities between that. In fact, the more you understand some prophetic books in the Old Testament, a lot of things in Revelation are going to start to make a little bit more sense because John is drawing directly from those images, those descriptions used about God to describe what he sees in Revelation. So another thing that my professor mentioned is that he spent like for the longest time, he would only read the prophets in order to understand Revelation because that's where all of this stuff is coming from. So the more you understand the Old Testament, the more you're going to understand Revelation. And this priestly description is combined with some interesting attributes, including hair white like wool and feet like burnished bronze. Uh, the description of the hair is actually pulled from Daniel 7's description of the Ancient of Days, which is God, the Father. And that's one of Daniel's names for that. And then the feet like burnished bronze refers to a couple of, un, a couple of places in the Old Testament that refer to God's unbridled glory in the Old Testament. So Daniel 10 and Ezekiel 1 describe God's glory as shining like burnished bronze. His voice is described as the sound of the roar of many waters, an allusion to the glory of the Lord filling the temple in Ezekiel 43. All these images are drawn together to drive home a point that the church usually already knows that Jesus is divine. Oftentimes people struggle with that, but if we hold to what the description that's being used here, John is taking things that were used to describe the Father in the Old Testament to describe the Son of Man in Revelation. He's just driving this point home, so it, it's kind of hard to get away from if you understand what the Bible is saying. And then the last descriptor to note is in this beginning section that he's holding seven stars in his right hand, where the right hand is typically understood to mean sovereignty. So in this case, it's a metaphor. He's saying he's still sovereign over the church. He's still kind of holding them and protecting them. So from that point, moving into the second part of this first section, which is verses 17 to 20, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in case there was any doubt as to who this was, 
He says he was dead and he is alive forevermore. Kind of a giveaway that this is Jesus talking. And then we can note John's response and actually seeing Christ as he falls as though dead, which echoes just about every Old Testament prophet's encounter with the glory of God. And although this description is similar to some of the angels later on, every time that worship is offered to anything other than God, whoever is offering it is rebuked immediately. You see that, I think it's at least twice in the book of Revelation, John falls to bow before an angel, and the angel's like, you better not, you gotta get up, man. I'm not God. Don't do that, because, oh, it's gonna be a bad time for you. So, this is another, another iteration proving, or showing Christ's divinity in that. And then, it's also interesting to note that from the first section to the second section, the first one is John describing what he's seeing, and then the second section is what he is seeing describing itself to John. So, first John sees all these things, and then Christ says, this is what I am. This is how you can describe me or refer to me. And one of these titles that he uses is the first and the last, which in a few chapters of Isaiah alone, it's used three times in chapters 41, 44, and 48, and it's used of God. These titles are used of God, and it's used to assure John and his readers that Christ is in control of history. He is the first thing, but he's also going to endure past everything else. The next phrase, again, talks about dying, and behold, he is alive forevermore, and immediately after mentions his possession of the keys of death and Hades. The connection between the two shows that through his death, and resurrection, Jesus won the right to these keys. Since he has his power, his followers can find victory in that as well, because he has done it on our behalf. The last, like, one other little phrase within this that I think is really important for the book of Revelation is that he describes the contents of the rest of the vision that John is supposed to write down as the things that are, and also things that are going to take place. So, Oftentimes, we can get caught up in reading Revelation as solely a future kind of thing, when what Jesus is saying is that you're going to see some things that are going to happen, you're going to see some future things, but some things are describing your reality right now, which is where I think this, this description comes in, because Christ is revealing himself as walking among the lampstands, as having this divine authority, but he is tending the lamp. He is tending the church as we need it. And this is supposed to be comforting as we go through difficult times, maybe not as difficult as the audience of Revelation was going through. If you read the letters uh, in chapters 2 and 3, you can see what some of that was. But the purpose is to encourage the church, is to say, no matter how bad things are for you, Christ is tending this lamp. He's tending the church. He is keeping you. He's, he's building you up. And that's kind of his role as priest, is acting on behalf of his people. And it's also fun, if you have a chance, read through Revelations 2 and 3, you'll note that at the beginning of each of the letters, part of the description that was just said is used to begin the letter. So, the first one, Church of Ephesus, 
the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's part of the description that was just there. Every one of them starts with a description and ends with an image that's used at the end of Revelation as well. So once you, I don't know, when I first heard that, I was, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, that's an encouraging image of Christ as he maintains and upholds the church. And our next section, our second one, is Revelation 5. And just before I read the first part of it, Revelation 4 deals with, deals with just the one who is seated on the throne, and he alone is worthy of praise. So you see everyone in the heavenly realm praising him, saying he is, he's, he's God, he is Lord, he's the only one that we can praise. So that kind of is the setting going into Revelation 5, which begins with, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So this vision begins with a scroll in the right hand of the one who is on the throne, and a search for one who is worthy to open it. But no one is found. And people have theorized about what the scroll actually contains. I it's likely that it contains a salvific plan and the contents of the rest of Revelation, because when the seals are opened, all these riders show up, and then they are able to do their thing. But either way, John is distraught because no one is found who can open it. There is no one worthy in all of creation who, is op who can open it. So, understandably, John's a little bit upset. He weeps and weeps. But he's comforted because he is told that the Lion of Judah a great image of strength and military might and conquest, and also the root of David, the greatest king in Israel's history, he is conquered. So he can open the scroll. He can do it. He has the power and the authority to do it. And those titles are seen throughout the Old Testament, and they're, they kind of influence Israel's idea of what a Messiah is and what he's going to be. But if you read the next section, John's a little bit surprised because he says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slaughtered, or looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one at a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So, you have another bit of a contrast between what 
John hears, and then he turns to see. So he hears, oh, this strong conquering lion is going to do what needs to be done. And then he turns and he sees a lamb as if it was slain on the ground. This is a key aspect of Revelation, and that Jesus' victory has come through his death. His sacrifice redeems his people and has broken whatever power is holding his people back. And you see that theme throughout. As you talk later on, John describes the, the conquest of the dragon or the conquest of the beast, but also the conquest of the martyrs, the conquest of the church, which is through obedience unto death, which is quite a bit different than what we would normally think conquest would look like, but that's in... That's what it says, so... Mm. <laughs> so, the Lamb stands in place of his people as a representative substitute for their sins. And through his death, he overcame by creating a kingdom of redeemed subjects, a kingdom of priests, which is an important aspect because the priest's job is maintaining the people of God, but also to intercede on behalf of the people. That's part of our role as the church. We're a kingdom of priests, being intermediaries between God and the people around us, which you can talk about Paul's ministry of reconciliation as connected to that, but it's kind of getting off topic. So after the lamb is described, he simply, just, he simply walks up to the throne. I don't know if it's proper to imagine him kind of strutting up to the throne, but just kind of walks up, grabs the, like he takes the scroll out of the hand of the one who's on the throne. He has the authority to do it. And it's not really a question. And you see everyone around the throne give praise equally to the lamb that they do to the one who is seated on there originally. Another emphasis on Jesus' divinity. So he's praised because of that, but also because of his conquest over death and ransoming the people of God. And this is the throne imagery also functions to, functions to show that despite what the world looks like, there's always God seated on the throne. And the lamb is there with him. And if you notice, the lamb also has the seven spirits or the seven eyes, which is the Holy Spirit. So you see all three of them on the throne. So no matter how bad things get, you can always draw comfort from that. Like, oh yeah, this world seems to be going through a bad time, but God is still on the throne. Hallelujah. We can rejoice in that. And this, this vision also serves to set up the next part, which is the seven seals, because, as I said, the first four seals are all horsemen that are given power and authority to kill, uh, induce famine, pestilence, and all these things. But before they can do that, they need to approach the throne and receive authority to do it. So in all these things, they need to go and ask God for permission to do what they're going to do. Similar to the beginning of Job, when you see the accuser walks up to the throne and he has to receive authority to do what he's going to do. All of it derives itself from God. He permits some things to happen Sometimes we don't know the exact reason behind it. Job never gets an answer, really. God just shows up and he's like, I'm God. What are you going to do? <laughs> but 
we can trust that God is in control of these things. That despite the fact that it looks as though things are running out of his, con out of his control, they aren't. He has permitted them to happen for a time. And again, as we look at our current political and social climate, this, this is an encouraging thought. We can look at that and say, oh man, things seem to be going farther and farther away from the ideal that God has set up, but God is still sovereign over it, and he's not going to let it last forever. And that's part of the hope of the book of Revelation. Because Revelation reveals the image of the Son of Man tending the lampstands, revealing that even now Jesus is caring for his church and providing it with everything he needs. It might be possible that we can imagine he's walking among the lampstand, the lampstands now, and he's tending the lampstand that represents the church of Leamington. He's present with us as we speak. And the image of the lion and the lamb shows that Christ's death was the deciding factor in his victory and that he is seated on the throne. And kind of as we see a world that appears to do its best to ignore and reject God, I think we're left with two options of response, which to a varied degree are the responses of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. One of these options is despair and capitulate or compromise. The second is to persevere and to conquer. The first sees the world and laments that the situation is hopeless. People are just going to keep hating God. Why bother to change anything? Maybe we should just do our own thing. Maybe we should just try and enjoy whatever time we have left. And that, that mindset leads to compromise, and you can see that within the church as it becomes more and more difficult to, to stand for what is right, to stand for what is holy among a people who reject God. And that's kind of, that's the danger that you see in a lot of these churches. And the f I think it's the first one. In Ephesus, they're threatened with, if you keep going the way that you're going to go, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Which, I don't know about you, but it scares me. And the second option is to see the world and know that God is greater than the world. The second option is to determine oneself to keep from compromising any biblical values that we would hold in the face of a hostile culture because it understands that there is a greater value to knowing Christ and to knowing God than there is to any temporary joy we can have by being one with the world. As in 1 John, he talks about being in the world but not of the world. And to embrace this second option is recognizing that ultimate victory will be postponed until Christ comes back. But in the meantime, our method of conquest is through serving God and sacrifice. Because that is what it ultimately means to follow God. We're sacrificing our own selfish desires. In some parts of the world, you end up sacrificing your own lives for the sake of Christ because you understand that he is greater and he is worthy of everything that we can give him. And this will also be difficult because as God is faithful to his people, he will show us ways that we have already compromised 
I know that there are a lot of areas in my life recently that I've been shown me like hey you've been you've been compromising in this area and you haven't been ready to notice it until now so now I'm going to show it to you and that begins a process of growth it becomes a it turns into a process of greater development and greater faithfulness in that as opposed to the first option which would be like ah no nah, no nah, I'm fine I don't need to I don't need to turn away from that I can keep that for now it's kind of just popped into my head a, f a friend told me about a story he was telling someone that they had a serious addiction that they were dealing with well maybe not it was an addiction and he's like this could be a problem and he's like I've given up other things for God let me keep this and that's the attitude that a lot of us can have I'm like ah I've done that much but there's that one little thing that it's still a comfort to us but God is calling us out of that he's calling us to to differentiate ourselves from the world. And the contents of Revelation implore us to embrace the second option as it seeks to show that God and Jesus will continually uphold and support his people and eventually be victorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, thankful, we are thankful for what you have revealed in Revelation that you are, you are on the throne despite, despite appearances, that you are still in control, and that we can draw comfort from that. Pray that you would strengthen us as we go forward, that we would be able to be strong against influences that would ask that we compromise in any way. Yeah, I pray that you would continue to illuminate your word to us. And as we go forward, that we would reflect on you and have a greater adoration for you. Amen. As we come to the end of the book of Revelation, the apostle says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Oh, there's a good ending for us in this story. And the book of Revelation, it, it inspires us to the worship of God. It should inspire us to the fear of the Lord in a very good way. It inspires us to faithfulness and to dedication and to sacrifice and to perseverance. Uh, it didn't bend to a good job setting us up. You're gonna read Revelation differently now uh, as he has set that up for us.
But just all drawing back to, to what we will often say here is that it is all about Jesus. It is not about what we bring. It's not about what we offer. It's not about what we can accomplish. It is entirely about the one who sits on the throne and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. And our job is to get on board with him and what he's up to. It's not about our preferences or our will. It's about his will. And so we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, Father, let your kingdom kingdom come and let your will be done as we submit ourselves to following after him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Ben, Lord. Uh, we're going to hear more from him in the Bible study in the next few weeks, but this will be his final sermon here this summer. And so together we just bless him and pray your continued blessing over him. Continue to take him deeper, Lord God, in your word, in the understanding of who you are. Lead him by your spirit. Bless him this fall as he heads into his studies again, Lord. Form him and shape him the way that you will, Lord. Let him be clay in your hands, Lord, as you make him into the man of God that you have called him to be. And we're just so grateful for his willingness to serve and his willingness to share this morning. Bless him, Lord, and bless us all as we go out. There is much to think about. There is much to meditate on, Lord. Uh, Holy Spirit, continue to speak to us. Continue to unpack this for us as we go about our week. And as we do, Lord, let our eyes continually be drawn back to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, we say be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we go, someone will be happy to pray with you. If you need prayer for anything, you can come on up and we'll pray for you up here. Just a reminder, we are not here next Sunday. We will be down at the lake and we will see you there. God bless you. Have a wonderful week, Meadowbrook.